0: John chapter 19, we'll start in verse 18 together. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We'll read from verse 33. Verse 43, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the ongoing ministry of your word to all of our hearts. We ask that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to believe this morning. Pray that you would implant your truth deep within us, change us by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but I've always loved object lessons. Some of the things I still remember to this day happened in the forms of this sort of object lesson teaching. I have found it really useful, especially with younger children. The object gives an anchor point to whatever is being taught, and it aids in remembrance of what is being taught. So as we consider the first three hours of Jesus' crucifixion this morning, I want to communicate three lessons through three objects that we find in the text before us. In a sermon entitled, A Shirt, A Sign, A Cross. Well, first of all, look at a seamless shirt. And with this seamless shirt, we'll note together how every detail points to God's sovereignty. How every detail points to God's sovereignty. We pick up on the story in John 19, in verse 23. The soldiers have crucified Jesus. They took his garments, divided them in four parts... Every part, a soldier getting a part. They come to the tunic. The tunic is seamless; it's woven in one piece. And so they decide to cast lots for it. God is sovereign, and His sovereignty is over everything. He's the Creator. He's the owner of everything. Therefore, He is the Lord over everything. He has ultimate, supreme authority. All other authority derives its power from him. And the horrific actions that are taking place in reference to his son Jesus are all part of God's amazing plan. None of this is somehow taking God by surprise as if anything could take God by surprise. He's accomplishing his perfect will in and through all of the events that are unfolding. It makes us remember Joseph Who in Genesis 50, in talking to his brothers after there was a reunion with his brothers, and his brothers are nervous about what Joseph might do in retaliation against his brothers because of what they did to him. But what Joseph says to them is For as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph recognized that God was working even through the actions of the sinful actions of his brothers. To bring about the salvation of many. Remember as a result of Joseph coming to Egypt. And God giving Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. They end up putting together a a means by which they'll survive a huge famine. Joseph looks back at all those sinful actions even of his brothers. And says God used even your sinful acts against me. To bring about this present result. That many people would be saved. God is sovereign over all. And his sovereignty extends not just merely to the big picture, but to the details. Now, there are some that believe in the idea that God is a macro-manager. You know, he's over the big stuff. But all the little stuff, he's not a micromanager. And so the little stuff is somehow not under his purview. Somehow the thought is that this somehow preserves the idea of God's greatness while still affording man freedom and accounting for human responsibility. I think by ex- talking about things this way, like, well, God's over the end, but The means by how we get there, that's kind of left up to us. I think the idea with this is to try to somehow preserve man's responsibility while God is sovereign over the big picture. But that kind of statement only ends up undermining God's sovereignty altogether. If the details are up in the air, then how can we speak of God for sure bringing to pass his will? Isn't every event in some way dependent upon the particulars that make up the event? I mean, Isn't every event somehow built on particulars? So what point do you say that God is no longer sovereign over those details? You see, it doesn't follow. And by the way, it's not the way the Bible treats this situation either. Not the way the Bible handles God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The Bible emphatically over and over and over again bears witness to the fact that God is Lord over the details just as much as he is Lord over the big picture. He's sovereign over galaxies, yes. He's sovereign over the constellations, yes. He's sovereign over the ecosystems, yes. He's sovereign over humanity as a whole, yes. But he's also sovereign over every individual. He's sovereign over every flea, every germ, every atom in the universe. You see, he's the one that not only created everything, but he sustains everything. Yes, he upholds everything. I was reading in Jobus last week, and That's a great statement of getting at this idea of God sustaining. I just love Elihu says this. He says, who gave God authority over the earth? Who has laid on him the whole world? If he should determine to do so, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. What a beautiful way of saying this. He says, God who gave us breath could also take the breath back. He could take that right on back. And the moment he did, we would return to dust. God sustains everything. He upholds everything. Now, there are matters which are unknown to us. There are some things that seemingly happen without purpose. And when we say that, it means we can't trace out the purpose. We don't understand how this came to pass. These are sorts of things we might refer to as luck. But ultimately, there is no such thing. Chance and luck don't bring about anything because they're technically not powers. Chance and luck can't do anything because they are not functioning powers. They're not entities. They're descriptions of probability, but they don't actually bring to pass any particular outcome. We still use words like chance and luck. And by the way, I think we should cut each other some slack and grace when we use words like that. There's nothing wrong with talking about chance all we have to realize is when we speak about it, it just means that we're unable to predict the outcome. So if I roll dice at this moment, I don't know what the outcome will be. I can't predict it. But if I could know all the factors between the way that they rolled off my hand, how much force I gave them, what surface they would touch, how the friction would go. I mean, we could predict it if we knew all of that, but we don't. And so these sorts of things we call chance. It's a way for us, shorthand way for us to say we can't predict these things. It goes beyond our ability to predict them. But does God know how those things are going to fall? Absolutely. We also, we use these sorts of phrases, but they're not actually anything at all. And that's what's so sad is in our own day, sometimes chance and luck have like taken on almost the status of deity. This is the big problem for atheistic naturalists. They, they claim that chance and luck are the big heroes of how life began. But as I said earlier, neither chance nor luck can do anything. They're just descriptions of probability. They don't actually bring to pass any result. A result is only possible with someone or something acting. And ultimately, without a being who is self-existent, nothing could ever be. What's needed is an unmoved mover, an uncaused cause, a self-existent being who has life in himself, For that reason, the only reasonable explanation as to how we got here is God. Everything that God made not only bears witness to his existence, but we're told in Romans, it also bears witness to his nature. Even invisible attributes of God are clearly displayed through what God has made. What do we mean by that? Well, things like God's infinity, his limitlessness, his beauty, his grandeur, his creativity, his compassion, his goodness. Bottom line, chance has never done anything. So certainly chance couldn't create something. God is sovereign in this present case that we're looking at here over what the soldiers do with Jesus' clothing. We're told the soldiers divided into four parts, probably because there were four soldiers there, and this was typical practice among the guards. But when it came to Jesus' tunic, being woven, we told, in one continuous piece, they felt it better to cast lots to determine who would win the prize. I assume that they were concerned that if they cut it in pieces, perhaps it would all unravel, or just the value of it was such that they were like, hey, it's not worth cutting this thing up. Well, let's just barter for it. Let's, let's cast lots for it. Let's gamble for it, and let's see who it is that wins the prize. Now, what's sad is that this little text, and you'll see this throughout the I mean every every part of scripture there's issues with this with false teachers but this is one of those where some prosperity gospel teachers have made a big deal about the fact that this was a seamless shirt. They even said that you know yeah Jesus only had like one pair of clothes but it was designer clothing. And that's why they were gambling for it. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. This is common practice for the guards. They would split up garments of the criminals among themselves. Their reason for casting lots is merely a practical matter. It wouldn't be useful to them to cut it up in four pieces, and so they want it be, to be intact, and so they cast lots for it. But even this clothing detail, which led to this game of chance, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 22, verse 18, They divide my garments among them, listen, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, if you read Psalm 22, you'll find the most startling description of crucifixion. And this description of crucifixion is given before crucifixion was invented. It did not even exist yet. And yet, when you read through Psalm 22, you will be taken aback at the description that is there given. It includes many precise details under which Jesus would meet with death, This is the very psalm that Jesus references when he says from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a matter of fact, the way to reference those psalms often, you don't have psalm numbers, is by the first line of the psalm. And that's what Jesus says from the cross. We'll look at that later on. We'll see more correlations with Psalm 22 together but the point is this if you were there present on scene you heard then jesus utter the words to the beginning of psalm 22 if you were familiar at all with psalm 22 and then you were looking at this scene as it took place you would see a multitude of fulfillments and here's john giving one of those you know what that's another thing that happens in psalm 22 they gamble for his clothing they divide it into pieces and so he makes special point to bring up this fulfillment of prophecy the Gospels insist that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. It marks Jesus out as unique, especially in the midst of other messianic claimants. There have been people who have claimed to be messiahs, right? We even have some more modern-day claimants to being messiahs. We've seen time and time again, though, how Jesus uniquely fulfilled what had been said about him hundreds if not thousands of years beforehand. All of this provides further attestation that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah. So, God must have orchestrated not only the clothes that Jesus wore that day, but how those clothes would be preserved by the stripping and redressing that the soldiers did with him regarding his floggings, as well as the manner in which that piece of clothing would be made, and that the soldiers would then have a desire to keep that piece of clothing intact, You see this down to the very details. Practically speaking, why spend time with this? I think because it ought to serve to us as a relief. This was no accident. And neither is anything that happens an accident. I don't mean to say that everything that happens is morally right. That is certainly not the case. Nor does that justify sinful behavior. But it does mean that no matter what the event is, God is working in and through it to bring about his purposes. And that we can rejoice in. The men are about to start a new book by John Piper entitled Spectacular Sins, which delves further into this reality. You've probably heard the phrase before, you know, God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. In other words... There is purpose and reason behind our suffering. Understand, this is something that's really important. For people who struggle with the idea of God while in the midst of suffering, if there is no God, suffering has no meaning. It has no purpose. The question of why suffering only makes sense in the context of theism that there's a God. If there is no God, who are you to complain why, do you even, why are you trying to search for meaning? There is no meaning. Suffering is meaningless. There is no purpose. The question of why is only a question for those who believe in God. For us, and that answer might not always come to us in this life. But there is a calm, resting assurance knowing that God is working in the midst of it all. It has meaning. It is not meaningless. It is not without purpose. You see, the suffering that we might encounter must include hurt, pain, and difficulty that happens as a result of our sins or the sins of others. In God's hands, even these actions are used by him to bring about the fulfillment of his purposes. Bottom line is this. The crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest sin ever committed, yet through through it, God accomplishes the greatest rescue ever imagined. So my words to you, don't allow your past sin to beat you up. How do we handle past sin? We confess it. We repent of it. We receive forgiveness from Christ for it and cleansing from him for it. And then we work by God's grace to further his kingdom purposes. And also, as a side note, don't allow the sins that others have done, either to you or against you or in some way affecting you, to hamstring your pursuit of God either. God can and does work through all of these situations. Praise the Lord that Joseph didn't mope about when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. I'm sure he had difficult moments with all of that. I'm sure he was human as he went through all of that, but we don't see him just moping about. We see him continuing to pray. So we must not allow betrayals and abuses and insults and injuries inflicted by others to develop into some sort of unholy anger or bitterness, nor must we think ourselves to be damaged goods because of some sin that we have committed. God works through cracked pots that we would shine forth for his glory. His power is made perfect in our weakness. You see, we're not only assured here of God's presence and power through it all, but we can rest in the knowledge that when we lack understanding and knowledge due to our finitude as to how this is possibly being used by God, we can rest in knowing that God's infinite wisdom and power and his goodness to his children means that he's accomplishing his purposes. And it doesn't rest on our ability to figure out why. Because sometimes we just don't know, but we can trust him. We can trust him. We move from a seamless shirt, should I say seamlessly, to a steadfast sign. A steadfast sign. How the kingship of Jesus is established forever. Now, there was an inscription that was placed over him. Luke twenty-three thirty-eight says, this is the king of the Jews. There were many that objected to Jesus' kingship. Just the idea of him being a king was objected to. Herod, when he finds out that one born king of the Jews has come, come along, he wants to put him to death. Now, many, year later, many years later, the Pharisees and scribes are seeking the very same thing. But now, as the cross is lifted up, the leading Jews see what Pilate instructed to be written as the charge against Jesus on the cross. This was typical. Crucifixion was meant to be a public display. Rome used it to frighten others. If you do what this guy did, you'll get what he got. That's the idea. And so they put a sign up on the cross. And the sign reads, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, when the religious leaders see what has been written, they're upset. This is insulting to the Jewish leadership. They hated Jesus, and they hated the idea, even the idea of him being called a king. But they also don't like the fact, I'm sure, that Pilate is to be so specific as to say, this is Jesus, the Nazarene. Nazareth was not a good place it was a place that was regarded with disdain we know this if you read John 1 when Philip comes to Nathanael and tells him we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote he said, we found him the one prophesied the Messiah the Christ Jesus of Nazareth son of Joseph Nathaniel says to him can anything good come out of Nazareth can anything good come out of that place Philip said come and see And just to make sure that everyone in attendance would be properly informed, Pilate makes sure that this was written in three languages. The legal language of Latin, the popular language of Greek, and the vernacular language of Hebrew or Aramaic. And I find this to be so ironic. It's as if Pilate is proclaiming that Jesus is king to all the nations. And this is true because Jesus, while being king of the Jews, has implications for the nations. Jesus' kingship has implications for the entire world. And those who most vehemently want Jesus dead cannot silence the sign, and it's driving them mad. But Jesus has a title that will never be removed. They demand that Pilate rewrite the charge to include he said that he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate sees no need for an adjustment we can be quite certain that this was an overt way for Pilate to get back at the Jews. Remember, he didn't really want to put Jesus to death. They forced his hand in the matter. They pressured him. And then he gave in when they threatened that they'd go to Caesar with this. So Pilate, as kind of a last jab to the Jews, decides to use the sentence against Jesus as a tool against them. Pilate replies, what I have written, I have written. As Riken said, the title that Pilate meant for mischief and his soldiers used for mockery was the gospel truth. With delicious, savoring irony, God himself was the one who put this sign on the cross, even if it was written in Pilate's handwriting. Pink said it this way, unknown to Pilate, he was the Amenuenesis of heaven. He was the secretary of heaven. He's writing down the very... Phrase that God would want put on the cross above his son. God's word is steadfast. God's word is unmovable. Jesus declared in Matthew 5, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That is what Jesus came to do, to accomplish the law, to fulfill all that the law called for, fulfilling all righteousness and fulfilling every prophecy. Jesus is king. And his kingship is established forever. This was said of him in Luke 1. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Revelation 19.16. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. Not king of the jews but king of kings and lord of lords as lockridge said there was no one before him there'll be no one after him you can't impeach him and he's and he's not going to resign one day at the name of jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father Well, we've considered a seamless shirt and a steadfast sign, we now move to a cruel cross. A cruel cross. How God uses death to give us life. How God uses death to give us life. There are many that asked Jesus for a show of power. There are many that crowd around the cross asking Jesus to display the reality of who he was by coming down off the cross. We're told that there were bystanders. Matthew 27, parallel text, verses 39 and 40 says, Now the ones passing by were blaspheming or reviling him, shaking their heads and saying, The one destroying the temple and in three days building? Save yourself! If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross! We're told here by Matthew that even casual passerby, passersby mocked Jesus. They challenged him to come down off the cross if indeed he was the Son of God. They reference Jesus' earlier statement made regarding this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. They mock Jesus. They're saying, if you can make claims like that, certainly you can come off the cross. If you're saying, destroy this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days, certainly you can save yourself from this consequence. And for all of us, right, the irony here is very, very sharp, isn't it? Jesus is indeed fulfilling what he said. When he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. John 2, verses 19 through 22, this is what he said. Destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Now watch what John says. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When did the disciples get this? Next verse. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Isn't it fascinating that of all the things that he could have picked on to speak about to Jesus while he's on the cross, they picked this statement. You said destroy this temple, you'll raise it in three days. Come down from the cross then. Prove that you can do that sort of thing. And they don't realize that Jesus is proving that he does that sort of thing by staying on the cross. But the bystanders aren't the only ones. The priests and elders join. Matthew 27, 41 through 43 says, Likewise, the chief priests, also with the scribes and elders, mocking him, were saying, Others he saved? Himself he's not able to save? The king of Israel he is? Let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe him. He's trusted in God. Let God rescue him now if God desires him. If God is pleased with him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Luke says it this way. The rulers were scoffing, saying, others he saved. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, the the elect, the chosen one. You see them all mocking Jesus. Their taunt here is sarcastic. The last thing in the world they want for Jesus to do is come down off the cross. Really? They're taunting him though, right? Saying, you can save all these other people. Save yourself. I find that an interesting admission. They admit that they saw Jesus save others. Right? You saved others. Save yourself. Oh, so now you're admitting what I've done. They claimed that if he was to come off the cross, they would believe him then. Well, how about this? How about he die and rise from the dead three days later? Will you believe that? No. So would they have believed if Jesus had come off the cross at that moment? No. They saw his miracles. Even these taunts are a fulfillment of prophecy. Again, Psalm 22 Verses 7 and 8, listen to how precisely the same it is. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. The soldiers join. Luke 23, verses 36 and 37. The soldiers also mocked, coming up, offering sour wine to him, saying, If you're the king of Israel, save yourself. These soldiers again add their two cents. If you are the king of Israel, save yourself. Come on, show us your power. You look at these taunts, don't they sound so familiar to what Jesus encountered in the wilderness with Satan? If you really are the Son of God, make these stones bread. If you really are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then a taunt comes from a hardened, condemned criminal. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming, was reviling him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Even here, a dying criminal makes a dig against Jesus. Although I find it interesting that just in case, he ends his request with, and us, <laughs> save not only yourself, but save us too, just in case. If you really are the Christ, save yourself and save us. I'm sure this thief desired relief, and so his point being, if, if you really are the man, show it now. Now is when I need it. So show, show it now, Jesus. The thief believes this would be the time to demonstrate his miraculous power, but that would not be God's plan. I wonder how often some of us respond in similar manner. Perhaps some who are not Christians have put God to this sort of test. If you want to prove that you're really there, do this for me now. Sometimes maybe as Christians we even falter into this sort of line of reasoning. Lord, if you are king, come through for me now in this way. Do it now. Show me that you are Lord now, this way. Now would be the time to show up. If you truly loved me, or if you truly loved my loved one, now would be the good time to intervene. Yet, if Jesus had granted this man's short-sighted request, he would not complete a bigger salvation, the one upon which all of humanity depended, that is, the saving of us from our sin and the grant of eternal life. You see, we can trust our king to take care of us. And at times that will mean as we pray and cry out to him, we will see a particular deliverance in regards to a particular situation and we'll be thankful for that. But, dear friend, you also must be prepared for those times in which the Lord says, I will not deliver you from the trial in the way that you have asked for it, but I will be with you through the trial And no matter what happens, if you're a believer, I will ultimately deliver you from the trial. You see, on the cross, Jesus not only bore our sin, but he suffered in every way imaginable. He bore our guilt and he bore our shame. So while all these many ask for a show of power... There is then this welcome foil, this welcome relief as a repentant sinner asks to be remembered. A repentant sinner asks to be remembered. The other thief, nailed to the other side of Jesus on his own cross, speaks out and rebukes the first thief. He says to him, Do you not even fear God? We're here in Luke 23, verses 40 through 42. Do you not even fear God since you're in the same condemnation? His question here is, how can you, now yourself on the brink of death, be so lacking of fear toward God whom you are about to meet? And that you would feel such audacity as to encourage and join in with the jeers and the taunts that the rest of those in attendance are engaging in. If there's anyone who should have a different perspective on this matter, it should be you. Reminds us of the old saying there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole, right? I mean, the idea of this is under extreme stress and extreme danger of your own life, people start calling out to God. People start praying who are otherwise prayerless. But sadly, the statement is not true. There are atheists in foxholes. There's a whole lot of atheists on the brink of death, not calling out to God. And this is further proof of that. Here is a thief on the one side of Jesus taunting Jesus. Just because he's on the brink of death, it doesn't automatically soften his heart. There are some today who sadly believe they can put off decisions regarding Jesus for later. When they get nearer death. For some people, that's mean. When I'm older, I'll make a decision regarding Jesus. For others, it's, well, if I come close to death, if I have a near-death experience, then I'll get right with God. But that sort of reasoning fails on at least two counts. First, you don't know how much longer you have. And you don't know that you're going to be guaranteed a time frame in which to make a reversal decision on this matter. Let's be honest. You could die instantly from some brain aneurysm or a heart attack and not have... The moments you would need to even contemplate these realities. See, all that you have is now. The question is, what will you do with the present, not what will you do in the future? I'm sure the devil would love to make us make all decisions that way. Just push it off for another time. I think Lewis even talks about that in Screwtape Letters. It's fine if he has all this resolve. Just make sure that the resolve is always met with tomorrow. Tomorrow I will do such and such. The other problem is this. The human heart is not neutral in these matters. To reject the gospel impacts your heart. To shirk off God's kindness with callousness is sure to bring you more callousness. Don't treat lightly the kindness and forbearance of God. And as the second thief continues to explain... We are here justly. We're suffering what we should. We are receiving that which is worthy to what we did. It's commensurate with what we have earned for ourselves. But this man has done nothing wrong. Here again, another time, someone saying Jesus is innocent. And this time it comes from one who sees himself as rightly condemned for wrongdoing yet has to admit that Jesus never did anything wrong. So we've already had Judas Iscariot who's come back saying, I betrayed innocent blood. Here, take the silver back. They say, what's it to us? We don't want it. And he throws it into the temple and he goes out and hangs himself. We have Pilate repeatedly and Herod as well saying, I don't find anything against him. He's innocent. And now we have here a thief on the cross saying we're guilty of what we're receiving but he's not all these multiple attestations regarding jesus's innocence just further proves that jesus is exactly who he said he was he is the son of god he is the righteous one we don't know what kind of interaction this thief had with jesus before the cross it might have been the only time he ever saw him he might have known of him Certainly, if he was in that city, he had heard of him. Maybe he had seen him before. We don't know. We're not given any backstory regarding that at all. But I can guarantee this. I'm sure he's watching Jesus now. He's watching Jesus as he's suffering, as he's being crucified. And I'm sure even the manner in which Jesus received the crucifixion must have made an impact on this thief. His innocence is somehow plainly evident to this thief. Not only did Jesus live perfectly, but he suffered and died perfectly. How do we respond under times of persecution and suffering? i take time with this for just a moment because I know this to be a weakness of mine. And perhaps you share this weakness with me. I find myself easily moving from what perhaps at one moment is righteous indignation to an unholy anger, and this often happens in my life when I feel unjustly accused of something, when I feel that someone is accusing me of something that I did not do, or or putting motives upon in connection with me that I did not have, and I find myself quickly becoming even sinfully angry about that. Here's Jesus, not only encountering all of the pain associated with crucifixion, but in the midst of all of this junk that's being said about him, a bunch of lies, all the taunting. And yet, in the midst of, multitude, midst of all this multitude of wrongs that's being done to him, Jesus suffers silently, and he continually entrusts himself to God the Father. So this penitent thief warmly welcomes the idea of Jesus' kingship. He even asks Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me in your coming kingdom? This is fascinating. Some people saw Jesus raise the dead and did not believe. This robber sees Jesus being put to death and believes. He sees Jesus in what would appear, humanly speaking, to be the least kingly-looking position. And yet he sees past the outward appearance, and he asks that Jesus remember him in his coming kingdom. So many here see Jesus as an object to, to scorn and mock, but this penitent thief is humbled before Jesus. He acknowledges him as the king he is, a king who will bring to pass his kingdom even through death on the cross. He says, when that day comes, will you remember me? God had given this thief eyes to see. He was given insight into who Jesus was in a way that the surrounding masses, as they taunted and joked and laughed at Jesus, did not see. This thief saw the sign above Jesus to be a true sign, a real sign of who this man was. And he asked that Jesus remember him. What does Jesus ask for? Jesus asks for forgiveness. We're going to look at two verses here, Luke 23, 34, and then Luke 23, 43. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is actually the first of Jesus' recorded sayings on the cross. It seems as if it's pictured as they're nailing him to the cross. So as the crucifixion literally is happening, as he's being put to the cross that these are the words that are coming from his mouth. When I say that Jesus is asking for forgiveness, obviously I'm not saying he's asking for forgiveness for himself. You see, men die because of sin. It's the wage of our sin is death. Death entered into humanity's experience because of disobedience and sin. But Jesus never sinned, and therefore death was not required of him, and therefore he need never ask for forgiveness, for he never did anything wrong for himself. Yet Jesus laid down his life, and through his death, he brought death to death. In God's marvelous work of redemption, Jesus is granting life to the dead through his death and subsequent resurrection. So here at this moment, while sinners are seeking Jesus' death, Jesus is seeking life. They're seeking his death, but he's seeking their life. So while he's being nailed to a cruel cross, while he's having abuses hurled at him, Jesus prays to God the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays for the very ones who are mistreating him and rebelling against God. And thankfully he's doing that, because if it were any other case there'd be no hope for any of us for all of us are guilty of mistreating christ and rebelling against god as well spurgeon said it this way now into that pronoun them i feel that i can crawl can you get in there oh by humble faith appropriate the cross of christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word them what's he saying father forgive them spurgeon says i feel i can crawl into that word (laughs) I'm one of those them. question is, are you one of them them? Will you crawl into that them? Will you find forgiveness of your sins by crawling into Jesus, by going to his cross? Such a blessed reminder, too. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks in Matthew 5 about, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? He's saying, love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. The only way it's possible for us to do that is because we've received this very gift from Jesus. Who, when he was persecuted, prayed for us who is willing to die for us. No man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 2. We all said this read this morning. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if you, when you sin, you're harshly treated? Right? This is the, the thief on the cross who's penitent saying, we're being punished rightly. We deserve this. We can't cry out foul. We deserve this. He says, what credit is there if you're harshly treated when you sin, when you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right, you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I wonder how many martyrs have had saving influence on people by the manner in which they not only lived, but how they died. You see, the cross both comforts us because it tells us that in Jesus we can be secure. In, the, in Jesus we can be forgiven. He died in the place of sinners. But the cross also calls us to a sanctified life. And it calls us to reach out to others with the love of Jesus. Well then Jesus gives a promise. He looks to the thief who had asked to be remembered, and he said, and I love, you know, whenever Jesus says anything, it's true. Why does Jesus say things like, truly, truly? This is him who never lies. We know it's not because he needs it. It's some marvelous condescension to us again. Truly, truly, I tell you, I say these things to you today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The thief had hoped to be remembered in Jesus' coming kingdom whenever that might happen. Jesus says, rest assured, this very day you will be with me in paradise. His response goes beyond what the repentant thief was asking for. Dear friend, I won't merely remember you. You will be with me this day in paradise. There's debate about the particulars of what Jesus is referring to here. I think a good parallel to this is Luke 16, which Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus. There's an indication of their Abraham's bosom, a place of Joy and goodness. The description of Hades, a place of torment. Simply described, it's a place where believers will continue in a conscious intermediate state until the resurrection. This fits very well with Second Corinthians five eight, which says to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, or at home with the Lord. In other words, it's not some limbo believer dies and goes to be with the Lord but I believe the most important thing is also something that's quite clear in the Bible regardless of your definition of this word paradise here I really like reading the Greek here in a very literal way it kind of sounds very wooden but I like the way that it ends up stressing the words today with me you will be in paradise Today with me, you will be in paradise. No matter where paradise is, what makes it paradise is that Jesus is there. Wherever it is, what makes it paradise is that is where Jesus is. Being with Jesus makes it paradise. And that's why it's only a place for those who love Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, heaven would not be a place for you. Contrary to a secularist who thinks that heaven will be endless golf, I'm not saying there couldn't be golf there, but. Contrary to Mormonism, where heaven's not you becoming a god and populating your own planets with spirit babies, contrary to Islam, it's not a place where you'll be granted 70 to 100 virgins. Contra those who imagine heaven to be a place where selfish desires are pursued to excess, heaven is a place in which you will behold the glory of God and be granted the deep, deep privilege of living forever in communion and love with him. And we know that God's ultimate plan is to set up a new heavens and a new earth and to grant his people resurrected bodies to dwell with him forever. But he tells this thief, not some coming day, today. Today with me you will be in paradise. The salvation of the thief on the cross is helpful in so many ways. We certainly could, I'm I'm sure people have preached multitudes of sermons on this text. But at least to say one further thing. Those who believe in things like baptismal regeneration, that a man must be baptized in order to enter into heaven. That idea is really squashed by this text. Besides just being inherently false for the sheer fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, declared straightforwardly throughout the entire Bible, for to add one work to grace is to strip grace of being. Grace It's no longer grace if you do a work. But this is certainly a wonderful case in point. Jesus tells this thief that this day he would be with him in paradise. There's obviously no time for baptism. There's no time for visible church membership. There's no time for the Lord's Supper. There's no time for good works. Quite literally, his hands are nailed down. Right? All there is is an acknowledgment of this man's own sinfulness, an acknowledgment of Jesus' perfection, sinlessness, And a cry for mercy to this man, Jesus. Jesus, and there's an acknowledgement of his kingship, right? You are Lord and King in your coming kingdom. Remember me. I'm a sinner. You are not. Remember me, Jesus. That's what it kind of reduces to. Spurgeon said that Jesus took this convert on the cross with him to paradise as a specimen of what he meant to do. He seemed to say to all the heavenly powers, I bring a sinner with me. He's a sample of the rest. You see, contrary to all of the taunts, Jesus saved others. Save yourself, Jesus. Do some saving work, Jesus. Jesus is exactly doing that right here. He's doing it in the big picture way through his own life, death, burial, resurrection. He's doing it even with one particular individual sitting to one side of him. Not sitting, crucified to one side of him. Today you will be with me in paradise. Contrary to all these taunts, Jesus can and does save, and not only a thief to his side, but all those who trust in him the way that that thief trusted in him. Isn't that a joy? Isn't it a joy to know that no matter what has happened up to this point, no one is too far gone. As long as there's still breath in your lungs, no matter how many times before now you have forsaken Jesus, now can be the moment. Now is when it can all change. If you will repent and trust him now, he will save you. Wright summarizes, now Jesus is hailed as king at last, but in mockery. Here comes his royal cupbearer, but it's a Roman soldier offering him sour wine that poor people drank. Here is his royal placard announcing his kingship to the world, but it is in fact the criminal charge which explains his cruel death. And unlike traditional martyrs who died with a curse against their torturers, Jesus prays for their forgiveness. Like a king on his way to enthronement, Jesus promises a place of honor and bliss to one who requests it. Before Pilate, the people cried out for Jesus' crucifixion. Then when Jesus is on the road to Golgotha, some there mourn the cruelty about to take place. Then when he's crucified, they mockingly cry out that Jesus save himself. Jesus told them, your tears are misplaced. Your state is the precarious one. It's your condition which is on the brink of destruction. And Jesus refuses to save himself in order to save us. He needed no one to save them. But we need him. Ironically, Jesus is providing Salvation for others precisely because he did not save himself. It was precisely because Jesus was the Son of God that he stayed up on the cross. Jesus was not willing to come down from the cross. This is the reason he came. John 12, 27, now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is why Jesus was willing to come down from heaven, willing to be mistreated, willing to be betrayed willing to be slandered, willing to be mocked, willing to be beaten, willing to be crucified, willing to die. Now there is something indeed true, that if Jesus would die and remain in the ground dead, what help, what salvation could he offer us? Yes, he did come down off the cross, or did not come down off the cross when he was mocked. He didn't perform some Powerful miracle to avoid the cross. Jesus did something greater. He submitted himself to death. Only then three days later to rise from the dead. You see, the grave could not hold our king. He's alive. And in his victory, we, are, we who were enslaved to sin and death can be set free. Jesus' death and resurrection changes everything. In fact... Jesus is your only hope. In him and in him alone, you can pass from death to life. In him, you can no longer have any condemnation. Run to Jesus. Flee to the cross. Jesus died for sinners and he rose for their justification. The Bible says anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Case in point, this thief on the cross, huh? We ought to give praise and thanks to God for a seamless shirt, for a steadfast sign, for a cruel cross. And might I add, a completely empty tomb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this marvelous good news good news that wretched sinners can be saved that that salvation happens through your son Jesus who refused to come down off the cross and instead willingly submitted himself to death and to perform the greatest act ever and then rising again from the dead conquering sin in the grave thank you for the hope that we have in him and I pray that if there are any in this room who up to this point have pushed off decisions regarding Jesus, I pray that you would soften their hearts now. That you cause them to call out to Jesus now. To no longer put this off. That you save them by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.